We've probably all uh, heard this word before, driving in our uh, cars, rerouting, rerouting. It's your GPS telling you you're no longer on uh, the path that it was intending for you uh, to take. Either you took a wrong turn or the GPS did not take into account uh, the road construction and the the detour that has taken you off uh, the course. Either way, you are not on the direct path any longer that you were intending from point A to point B. Now, this may not be too much of an inconvenience or troubling when it comes to transportation. Maybe we're a little bit late to a meeting or for work as a result. But sometimes, uh, in life and faith, the detour is much more severe and much longer. Like 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Sometimes the the detour in life and faith means real pain and suffering. The loss of a loved one, a friend, uh, the struggle with illness, uh, chronic pain. Uh, At other times, uh, the detour means a call to a new community, a new part of the country. A new relationship, perhaps, that God brings into our lives unexpectedly. Our, Our life begins to take a shift, a turn. Sometimes the detour is so severe that it requires a shift in our thinking. Even perhaps at times a shift in our theology. How we understand God and His ways. Well, this morning we're entering into the book of Daniel. It's 12 chapters in length. And and this morning we will not only see the larger context for this book, but why New thinking is at times needed in order to see the hand of God, the work of God in the life of His people, how the promises of God will still unfold, even though we might be confused a bit, even in the midst of trouble or darkness. And we will see our calling as the people of God to be caretakers of the things of God, no matter the situation, no matter uh, the trouble or sense of darkness. So I encourage you to turn to Daniel Chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 7 this morning. It's in the middle of uh, the Scriptures, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Listen now to God's Word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths, without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, 
and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Have you ever had plans in your life that were uh, interrupted? Uh, Expectations that did not come to pass. Uh, Maybe there were something quite simple like dinner plans that got interrupted. But maybe they were more serious plans, more significant expectations that you had. Uh, The plan to attend a particular college, uh, pursue a particular specific career, uh, to get married at a particular point in life or have children, and things did not or have not unfolded as you thought or desired. Well, as we step back and look at the context of Daniel, one of the themes that surfaces early in the book is that while the plans of God's people are disrupted, their expectations shattered. In fact, we could say the people, in a way, may may appear to be derailed. Yet God provides His people a foundation, a theology, if we want to put it that way, that is sufficient for the times. God's sovereign hand is much easier to believe and sort of rest in when times are well. Circumstances feel stable. Uh, When you are moving in your life and faith in a kind of straight path from point A to point B, but how do I understand the hand of God when it appears that God's enemies are in control? The events of Daniel's life here and that of his friends recorded in the book take place at the end of the 7th century, the 600s, into the 6th century, the 500s B.C. We are told in the first verse of the book that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The immediate context of, of Daniel is the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. And those events are recorded in a few places, one of which is the last chapter of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36. In verse 5 of that chapter, we read, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. We know, historically, Jehoiakim reigned from 609 to 598 B.C. During this time and following, we get a a sense, sort of a taste, of the condition of the Old Testament church, the, the condition of the covenant community at this time. And we see that a few verses after 2 Chronicles 36, 5, a little bit later, In verse 14 of that chapter, this is what it says. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, 
until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Now, a hundred years plus prior to these events, in 722 B.C., we know the northern kingdom, often referred to as Israel in the scriptures in the Old Testament, had been exiled already, and that by the Assyrians. But the Babylonians were rising in power, and they had eventually conquered Assyria, the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, in 612 B.C., just a few years prior to uh, Jehoiakim taking uh, the throne. And the Babylonians at that time became the dominant empire in the ancient Near East. Now here, two important, I think, important points or applications. For one, as the book of Daniel will show, the history of the people of God, whether it's in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or for us still today, is in part a history of a people sometimes flourishing, sometimes flailing, but almost always living within and subject to a more dominant worldly power surrounding them over them, that they're having to live within. Sometimes that could be and has been quite oppressive for the people of God, whether it's the Assyrians or the Babylonians, later the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans, or today the church in China, Sudan, America. The people of God live within seemingly much more dominant worldly powers. How are we to live in that environment? We are a distinct people as the church, called out of the world, but we live in it. What kind of people are we to be? Whether it's God's people living as slaves under Egyptian rule, or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, God's people can feel like they're in a kind of washing machine at times, tossed about with little strength. How are we to live within a culture? How are we to relate to the powers that be that can seem unruly or incorrigible? Daniel, as a book in the scriptures, helps the people of God in this way. Over the weeks and months ahead, Daniel will help us in this. Second initial point is that you and I live in the same fundamental relationship to God as those in Daniel's day going into exile. And that relationship is a covenantal relationship, a covenantal one. The dynamic of that relationship, that covenantal relationship, is seen well in Leviticus chapter 26, where we read about the the covenant stipulations, the nature of that relationship that we have with the Lord. This is what it says there in Leviticus 26. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I have extended redemption. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commands, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. But if you will not listen to me and spurn my commands, then I will visit you with panic. Those who hate you shall rule over you. The author of Hebrews, recall, reminds us that our God as a good father in redeeming us not only blesses us as we walk faithfully after him, but he disciplines those that he loves. There, Hebrews says in the 12th chapter, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by Him. The Lord disciplines the one He loves 
and chastises every son whom he receives. As legitimate children, he corrects, he reproves, he guides, he shapes us. Uh, Our family has, over the years, um, very much appreciated and loved uh, the ocean and being have, having access uh, to the ocean, whether to the Jersey uh, Shore while living in Pennsylvania or here to Connecticut or Rhode Island uh, beaches. It's such a, a wonderful part uh, of God's creation. When our children were younger, though, we, we were often cautioning them about the potential power of, of the waves and of the currents. We all know what can happen if you go out too deep, too far. Uh, the current can take over. Well, God's people had been playing far too long in too deep of waters. And now the current had, in a way, overcome them. What's important here in that picture, though, is that the people of God could not get back to shore. This is where a new thinking or new theology had to be kind of take place, a shift in their thinking. If we can't get back to shore, how do we now live? The city was besieged. The temple burned and destroyed. The faithful among the covenant community knew the most privileged position and place was to be counted among the community of faith in worship with God and of God together. They were not at home anymore. The temple, the centerpiece of communal worship, gone, destroyed. Verse 2 says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So a central issue was whether God's people could see and believe that while they were in the hands of evil, of an enemy, were they still in God's hands? I think we question that at times ourselves. What is faithfulness to God to look like in Babylon? What is worship without the temple? What is worship in a foreign territory? You see, when the events of chapter 1 actually unfolded, the people had to change their thinking, their theology in a way, about how God would carry out His promises. Because up to that point, they believed the royal line of David would continue, uninterrupted, undisturbed, until the glorious second David The Messiah would take the throne as king of an everlasting kingdom, bring flourishing to the city of Jerusalem, the city of God. And that until that time came, the city and the temple were to remain unharmed, protected. So how would God fulfill His promise through a Messiah to bring peace and shalom and flourishing and redemption? And at a micro level in our individual lives... And at a macro level at times around the world, we're dealing with that question. Whose hand truly is ruling? The message of Daniel throughout is clear. A clear reminder, though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. A central theme through this book. And we see a strong hint or message of it in the first chapter with the word gave. At least three times, verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his Nebuchadnezzar's hand. If you look down to verse 9, which we'll be focusing in on next week, 
It says, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion. And then verse 17, as for these four youths, Daniel and his friends, God gave them learning and skill, wisdom and understanding. So whether it's giving God's people into the hands of foreign rule or furnishing them with the necessary strength, the necessary wisdom to navigate these troubling waters, it's it's the hand of God. Sustaining, governing all things. If you turn to chapter 2, just briefly, after Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, Daniel says this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Theologically, we, we may have great confidence in the doctrine of God's providence. But in real time, when events seem out of control, when sin may be weighing heavy, or when godlessness appears to be prevailing, then it's hard to see, it's hard to trust at times in God's purposes. We might wonder, is, is God for us? G- given what is unfolding, is God still for us? Uh, just this last Wednesday, in the evening, as Shelley and I were out grabbing a, a bite to eat, uh, a Major League Baseball playoff game uh, was showing. Uh, I don't follow baseball that closely, but it's the playoffs. I like sports, so I was giving some attention to it. Not as much attention as I was giving to my wife, but I, 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 was, I was seeing the game a little bit. And I noticed something. The camera kept repeatedly going back to this gentleman in the stands. At first, I didn't think much about it, but then it kept going back again and again. He wasn't dressed in any distinguished way. I, I, I couldn't understand who this person was. The two teams were the San Diego Padres and, and the Phillies. Then right at that time, I noticed up to bat was... On the back of the jersey, a man, I think, Nola, Austin Nola, if that's how you pronounce it, for the Padres. And then I noticed the name on the back of the jersey of the pitcher on the opposing team also had the same name. It's his brother, Aaron Nola. Apparently, I read later, this is the first time ever brothers faced off in Major League Baseball postseason. And then here comes the pitch by Aaron, and boom, his brother drives the ball into the outfield. It was a great hit and a turning point in the game. They were behind. They actually sort of shifted the current there, and they ended up winning, those who were behind. And the crowd goes wild with this hit. And then the camera goes back to this man in the stands. It's his dad, their dad. And uh, the the people are just cheering, and his face is totally straight. (laughs) Makes sense. Who is he supposed to cheer for? The pitcher or the batter? Yes. Well, when it came to Israel and the Babylonians, yes, God's people would experience the darkness of exile the pain of a city and temple destroyed. But he was not for the Babylonians. He was using Nebuchadnezzar. He uses nations to correct his own people, to purge his people 
to teach his people. That's humbling. God is for his people, but his instruction is sometimes painful and hard. We're reminded on a regular basis through the benediction at the end of our services. Think of the ironic blessing there in Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And in Christ, his face shines for his people. One of the lessons they would have to learn is one we have to learn again and again. We, as the people of God, don't get to dictate the course of history or even the course of a nation. The lesson and the question is, among others, will we be faithful and seek the Lord however history unfolds, however the present season unfolds in our own lives and the life of the church, however the culture unfolds? What kind of people will we be? So there's kind of tests that come to Daniel, decisions that have to be made. It's important, I think, to see the strategy that Nebuchadnezzar has in besieging the city and deporting a number of God's people. When we think of a figure like Nebuchadnezzar, it's easy to see him as simply a tyrannical ruler. To be sure, as we'll see, he shows signs of uncontrollable anger. He is a despot and tyrannical, but he's calculated and he is strategic in what he does. We're told in verse 3 that the king commanded his chief eunuch, quote, to bring some of the people of Israel, of the royal family, and nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom and knowledge, learned, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned to them a daily portion of his food and of his own wine. They were to be educated for three years. You see, the king's strategy is to rule not by brute force, but to entice them, to educate them, in the Babylonian culture to conform them to his way of thinking and functioning. We want to be thinking about that in connection to our own culture, the ways of the evil one. He's taking Nebuchadnezzar in a way, the finest of Israel, matriculating and educating them, lavishing upon them gifts almost seems to be building a kind of new culture, a new society. An ever finer culture. An empire that as chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, is recognized as having the worth of gold. But we know as Christians, as we read this, this is a, this is a godless empire. They worship false gods. A nation can have great power and wealth, the finest of things, be rich in material goods, great intellectual prowess and thinking, yet be far from knowing God, honoring God, cultivating godliness throughout. Daniel and his friends, and I would suggest in certain ways you and I, live in that world. Peter tells us, the apostle, we're strangers and exiles, aliens in this world. And so the question is, how are we to live in such a world? The prophet Jeremiah, another prophet who spoke to and had a message for the exiles, provides us some help here. 
Jeremiah chapter uh, 29. This is what we read. This is a letter Jeremiah sends to the exiles. And we come to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what you're to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Our calling is neither to conform to the world and thus lose our true identity as Christians. Those who have been redeemed out of the world, our true identity in Christ. But neither are we to withdraw from the world, having no presence or relevance or influence for godliness. For Christ and His kingdom. We're called in a way like Daniel to live in this world, in exile, yet as caretakers of the kingdom. That's our call. Every one of us is called by God within our sphere of influence, within our family, within our marriage, within our vocation, to be caretakers of the kingdom. That's a high privilege. That's what we're called to. And we do that as those in Jesus Christ, those who have been redeemed by Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of Christ. This one who entered into the ultimate exile for us, the exile of the cross. Daniel points us to the Lord Jesus again and again. Our Lord Jesus who knew what it was to be in exile in this world yet to be the true caretaker of of God's kingdom. And so as we follow the steps of Daniel, we're we're led ultimately to Christ and His cross. Where we see not only Him who bore the ultimate exile of sin and death for us, but where we see who we are in Him. As Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray, we pray with thanks for Your Word. We pray that it would rest upon our hearts and sink down deep and take root and produce fruit. We pray, oh Lord, that You would be gracious to us, that You would strengthen us as we rest upon... Um, the forgiveness of our sins as we look to your, to your Spirit and His guide, guidance in our lives. Lord, that we would be a people who, who care for, who are caretakers of your kingdom living in this world. That we would see again afresh the high calling to guard, to uphold your kingdom virtues, your kingdom purposes. Lord, form us as as one as you do that. And Lord, fill us with thanks. Thanks for how good you have been and how good you are to your people. In every season, every valley, 
every mountaintop, that you are with us and you are for us. In Jesus Christ, we pray this in his name. Amen.